Hey, welcome. This is Tech You Should Know. It's a podcast where we talk to tech leaders to keep you up to date on, as I like to say, everything digital. You can get new episodes every Tuesday and Friday, so make sure that you subscribe. I'm Kim Commando, and today we're going to dive into the dark web. You may have heard about it. It's a haven for cyber criminals who want to steal your data and hurt your loved ones for profit. And in this special podcast, we're going to speak to one of the world's most famous hackers. You probably heard of him, Kevin Mitnick. Now, this guy was once the FBI's most wanted because he hacked into 40 major corporations. So why did he do it? Was it for money? Was it for fame? Nope. Kevin did it, as he says, just for fun, just to see if he could. He's since reformed himself, and now he works as a security expert helping people like you and me stay safe from cybercrime. But anyway, we're going to get his insider take on the crimes that people commit on the dark web, like buying poison, buying drugs, or would you believe even hiring hitmen? So it goes way beyond just trafficking data and data breaches. So before we start, I'd like to recognize our partners who help make these Tech You Should Know podcasts possible. So we've got some crazy stories in store for you today, and I'm super excited to dive right in. But first, we have to welcome Kevin to the podcast. So Kevin, you have a pretty, I guess you'd say, unique background. And just in case anyone listening hasn't heard of, well, the world's most famous hacker, would you like to just take a moment and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kevin Mitnick. I'm a computer security specialist. I have a very interesting past where... I used to be on the other side back in the 1990s. I was a hacker uh, out of my love of magic. Never did it for profit or to harm anybody, but I did access computers without permission and got myself into a ton of hot water. You are a really famous fugitive. When the FBI, as they always get their man, caught up with me, I ended up spending about uh, four and a half years in pretrial detention without a trial. I can't imagine being in that situation. So tell me, what happened next? We made a deal with the federal government, and uh, I was sentenced to 68 months, and I was released in January of 2000, about 20 years ago. Okay, that was a long time ago. You've been up to a lot since then. So what do you do today? Today, I run a security company, and one of the primary competencies of the company is to do security testing known as penetration testing or ethical hacking. You know, a lot of people throw around the term ethical hacking, but what does it really mean? What do you guys and gals do when you are ethically hacking? My team, we get paid to hack into companies uh, to test their security controls. So you're essentially doing the same things, only now you're working for the good guys. You're on the other side. So it's almost like uh, Pablo Escobar becoming a pharmacist, if you will. Well, you certainly have the skill set, Kevin. You might as well put it for good use. So how does this work? I mean, how is it different from other things that you used to do? So it's not much different than I was doing back in the 1990s for free. The only difference here is I get I do it with authorization and I get paid very well for the services. Okay, this is great. I mean, it goes to show you that turning a new leaf can be good both for you and your wallet, right? <laughs> so... Um... Uh, besides pen testing, I'm uh, the chief hacking officer and uh, partial owner of a company called Know Before, 
We're based out of Clearwater, Florida. We have over a thousand employees. Each of you is going to build a covert communications network in your home city. You're going to deploy it, back up your site, destroy it, and restore it again. The point of this exercise is to keep your infrastructure up and running secure. I like that, Chief Hacking Officer. So what does know before do? We have uh, over 35,000 customers, and we're the leading uh, leading information security awareness training company in the world. And I'm also a public speaker. I go around the world speaking at numerous conferences, at least pre-COVID. I'll tell you, a lot has come to a screeching halt because of this crazy time that we're living in, this pandemic. So what is your main purpose with this company? I mean, what are your goals? What are your objectives? In educating people on the threats that are out there and uh, raising their awareness so hopefully they don't become the next uh, cyber victim, if you will. That's right. And hopefully this episode will help our listeners better protect themselves, too. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the dark web and how it can totally wreak havoc on people's lives. So, Kevin, as a cybersecurity expert, what goes through your head when you hear that term, dark web? Well, it's pretty much the uh, network that's accessed through the Tor browser. And, you know, to be honest with you, I use Tor when we're doing security testing to mask our IP address. I'm not really, you know, a a dark web uh, hacker So for anyone listening who may not know what Tor is, the Onion Router is really what it's short for. It's a free open source software program that allows for anonymous communication. Now, this doesn't mean that you can never, ever be found because nothing's really truly anonymous on the Internet. But it does give you a certain amount of protection. So Tor is a tool that was actually developed by the United States government to anonymize people that were using the internet to look at, I assume to look at enemy sites like in North Korea, maybe Russia, China. So it started as a way for the United States government to make its security work private. And it definitely is used for you know good purposes. Like, for example, people don't like to be tracked when they're shopping at Macy's online, so they might fire up a Tor browser to protect their privacy, which is completely understandable. So anyone can use the dark web for legitimate purposes. And that seems really strange to say that out loud. I mean, dark web legitimate. So how about you give us a few examples? Uh, you could might be a knife collector and you might be looking for automatic knives that you can't you know, get on the surface web uh, without a hassle because of the legalities in different countries and in different states, for example. So they might go to the dark web to do those types of purchases, which, you know, it's, you know, gray area. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're buying crack on, you know, on the web. That's true. But the dark web is most famous for its lack of, I guess you'd say, morality. It is a tool that criminals use to sell information, chemical weapons. And this is always very, very disturbing to me. Kitty porn. I mean, yeah, kitty porn's on the dark web. Yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. The internet could be used for good or evil. It really depends on the person behind the keyboard. It's a tool. People use tools in, in evil and in good ways. So when you started back in the 1990s, was internet crime like that at that time? I mean, how was it different? In the past, when I was hacking, the dark web didn't exist or the, you know, tour. And, and now post-hacker days, there's only one case. I work as an expert witness in a lot of uh, data breach cases. And how big of a threat are these data breaches? Give me an idea of what's truly at stake here. So a lot of these sites on the dark web get breached. 
and their databases are made public, which includes usually an audit log of the IP address, date and time, the username you used, the password chosen. And tell me how people can find out that information. People tend to use the same or similar password. When a illegal TOR site is compromised and the data is made public, an investigator could forensically pick up on clues to try to identify the person's real identity. So your line of work has led you to the dark web, tracking down cyber criminals involved in these massive data breaches. It seems like every other day there's a different data breach. So tell us about just one of these cases. In fact, I recently was on the Dr. Phil show. The episode was about uh, hackers that were breaking into people's nest camps and, and scaring people, you know, talking to them through the camera. You know, we hear about this, but these kids were hacking into a family's security camera. I'm your best friend. I'm, I'm Santa Claus. Now, these are 24-7 live streaming devices meant to help family members look after each other when they're away. So I can imagine it must have been so terrifying for them. I mean, a device that you bought for safety is now being used as a weapon against you. I was shocked to hear a deep, manly voice talking to my seven-month-year-old son. Yes, I'm here. Come, come. My blood ran cold. So... Your team tracked down the hacker. Did you actually find the person who was behind this attack? We realized it was a 16-year-old kid that probably was no threat to the family, but he scared the heebie-jeebies out of this woman in Texas and her family. Wow, just a bored kid looking for entertainment at a poor family's expense. I mean, Kevin, how exactly was a 16-year-old able to hack into this family's security tech? They were doing it through, you know, accessing online data breaches. There was a website that was very popular. We even used it in security testing called WeLeakInfo. How interesting is that the same website can help hackers and security experts? Kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. The Internet is totally a tool that can be used for good or evil. And how did this particular tool work? I mean, what type of information did you get from it? And we use this in security testing because people have a tendency to pick patterns when they have passwords. You could use it forensically to try to identify if a person has a unique enough password, you could search in the data breaches for anyone that's used that password. So bring us a little bit more deeper into the story. I mean, how were the kids able to harass this particular family? They were using WeLeak Info and and leak database, you know, which you could query leak databases for credentials and we're testing you doing what we call credential stuffing. So credential stuffing was the key. I mean, um, how would you define that? What that is is where you try leak credentials uh, on other sites that the target may have an account. So they were able to access people's nest cams where they didn't use two-factor authentication. Now, I'm sure that so many people are listening right now, and you might be wondering, like, how this happens. So you can learn, like, what not to do. Kevin just gave us the takeaway lesson. All right. It's pretty common sense, but a lot of people just don't take the time to do it. Make sure that you set up two-factor authentication. I mean, your security cams have it. And if you're not sure the steps to do it, head over to my website, commando.com. We totally have you covered. It's a great way to make sure that your information is safe and secure. 
So, Kevin, I want to understand why this happened in the first place. I mean, we are living in this golden age of technologies and, you know, kids are immersed in tech. They've got video games and forums and social media apps. So why would they choose to go to this particular type of website? I mean, what exactly is drawing them in? And they were doing this, I think, out of fun. You know, uh, one of the guys that ended up on the Dr. Phil show was one of the guys that was perpetrating it. Oh, so you were actually able to meet one of them face-to-face? What was that like? And he goes, well, I was testing their security. I said, that's hogwash, because if you were really testing their security, you could have just said, hey, I identified a vulnerability in your camera and emailed them you know, a, a message saying, hey, set up 2FA, which means two-factor authentication. You didn't have to break into the camera. Right. No actual security expert is going to use those kind of tactics. And if they do, they're going to get whacked. So what did he say? He admitted on television, oh, yeah, that I'm right. He was just doing it for fun. (laughs) Really? That is so strange to me. I mean, that somebody would actually say that. He tried to justify that saying he was a security researcher helping people by breaking into their cameras. But that was just obviously an excuse. And people, these, you know, teenagers, uh, I guess, are bored and they think it's fun to do. Actually, Kevin, this is making me wonder if we're seeing a growing security threat. I mean, with COVID-19, everyone's spending so much time indoors. I mean, could there be a rise in hacking attempts now that all these kids are stuck inside? And let's just face it, you know, a lot of parents are now looking at their kids saying, um, you know, your teacher lied when your teacher said that you were a pleasure to have in class. That's yeah, definitely a possibility. I mean, I started hacking myself back in the you know 70s, 80s, and 90s because I was bored and it was something to do and I wanted to learn about the technology. I wanted to challenge. Yeah, I can see that. It was like an adventure you could have behind your computer. So most certainly when you have bored uh, computer astute kids at home, they might, they might poke and prod around and try to attack systems. And you can also understand how this could totally appeal to young people. I could absolutely relate to people being at home, whether you're a kid or an older adult and being bored and wanting to have some excitement and turning to hack. And Kevin, this actually segues nicely into one of the stories that I wanted to talk to you about in this podcast. I mean, we wanted to try something different this episode and share a few stories. I mean, after all, we can all talk about how dangerous the dark web is, but it's different when you're hearing the actual tale, the story of a teenage girl who found her name and her location on a murder for hire website. Um, That's a story we're going to hear a lot more about later on. So we're hanging out with Kevin Mitnick, who used to be the FBI's most wanted hacker. Now he's a good guy. He's a security expert in everything cyber, and he's giving us his insider take on the dark web. So, Kevin, we spoke earlier about how people's personal data is all over the hacker forums on the dark web. And we've got a number that illustrates just how enormous this problem is. A security firm called Digital Shadows made this discovery in early July. They found that 15 billion, yes, with a capital B, login pairs were up for grabs. These login pairs are combinations of usernames and passwords, and they came from 100,000 data breaches. Wow. 
Anyone can buy access to these stolen accounts, which unlock a variety of doors. Now, the highest bidders can even buy their way into stolen banking accounts. So, Kevin, if somebody's information is out there, is there any way for them to possibly reel it back in? I mean, is there a way? Not on the dark web, but I personally had personal PII, personal identifying information. You have these sites like Intellis and other PI sites that advertise that you can look up anyone's personal information online and they let you do a, you know, a search on yourself or, you know, a small fee. We have a ton of resources over at commando.com, but are there any specific resources that you recommend? There's this great course offered by Michael Brazel, Intel Technique. He has created a form that people could send into these sites that have their personal information on the internet, you know, on the websites that ask them to take it down. If you can get the contact information at a site, and it's really simple to do by doing a who is, but um, what do you think is the best way to ask for a site to take your information down. I always tell folks, you know, be polite, don't be aggressive, ask for a favor. What do you think people should say? Per the DMCA, which is a federal law, that they remove this material that's personal about, you know, yourself, for example. Now, I can't imagine this approach going down too well in some of the hackers on the dark web. Right. You're not going to direct a criminal that's going to be behind an onion site on the dark web to take down your material. That's never going to happen. It's almost like the milk is spilt. Now you have to mitigate your risk in other ways, even though that information about you is out there. So let's say somebody has already spilled their milk. Their information is out there. It's up for grabs. Let's say they don't even know it. How can someone check to see if their information has already been compromised? There's a, I have a good friend who lives in Australia, uh, Surfer's Paradise. He runs a site called Have I Been Pwned? Yeah, we talk about this site, Have I Been Pwned, a lot over at commando.com. They've been doing just a fabulous job over the years. Um, why don't you do us all a favor and just spell it out for our listeners? That's H A B E, have I, the, you know, capital I, been B E N pwned, P W N E D dot com. I always tell people to check, have I been pwned, to see if their information is out there, and odds are it probably is. It's a way to identify whether your email address has been in a data breach. But regardless of that, why it's nice to know, of course, if you've been in a a data breach in the past, the smartest thing that people could do is use a password manager that auto-generates their passwords and stores stores them encrypted in a password vault on their computer. We've heard about password managers for years. Um, I don't personally use one because I want to figure out a way that I can remember my passwords and I can keep them all in my head, which I do. Uh, But what do you think about that? I highly encourage people to use a password manager, enable two-factor authentication. So to log into their password manager, uh, not only do they need their username and password, they need a second factor. I personally use a YubiKey. And tell us more about that. That's a hardware uh, key that I plug into the USB port on my computer to, as the second factor, that's the most secure. What else do you share with people after being the world's most sought-after hacker by the FBI? Make sure they choose a master password that's not a password, but a sentence. Like, you know, I went, I went to the beach today and swam in cold water. Sentence with the punctuation and, and the, the you know, uppercase I in the beginning, just a normal sentence. And why is that important? And that's very difficult to crack is when you're dealing with a sentence plus the two-factor authentication plus 
you're relying on software to auto-generate passwords. And what it does is when you visit a website for the very first time, it will uh, allow you to auto-generate a random credential that it will store in your password vault. And what should you do when you're accessing sites you already have an account on? Then what you could do is you could change your credential to have the have the product generate a random password for you. And that way it prevents people from using the same or a similar password on more than one site. It sounds like a lot of busy work, but these kinds of measures are necessary. They just are to protect yourself from yet another data breach. And that's real. What that's the real problem out there. You know, we're a creature of habit. We use the same password on more than one site, or we'll use a similar password that is potentially identifiable by a, a bad actor. When you're using a password manager religiously, it reduces the risk. And absolutely. And now that we're on the subject of risk, I'm reminded of the second story that I have for you today. So let's pivot to a completely different setting. We've been talking about all the shadows in the corners of the Internet, these shady chat rooms. And now I want to imagine that we are in this wide open sea with the bright sun shining down and warming your skin. And imagine that you're a Navy sailor looking out over the ship's rails into the rolling blue waves. It's just beautiful. Seagulls are flying. The sky is clear. Everything's normal. Then your phone makes an alert sound. And you find a military warning that's completely out of ordinary. Now, that bizarre warning was sent out in early July when the Navy warned sailors not to buy LSD on the dark web. What you talking about, Kimberly? Yes, you just heard me right. The Navy had to tell sailors not to buy the drug LSD on the dark web. This official notice told servicemen and women that online drugs are often cut with harmful chemicals. And it made sure to mention that sailors aren't as anonymous as they think they are. Now, I can't help but find the story very bizarre. I mean, why did the Navy have to send such a specific notice? Did some LSD-infused shenanigans take place on this open ocean someplace, sometime? I guess that we'll probably know. But Kevin, I would assume that most people know that using the dark web is dangerous. And you would hope that people in charge of keeping our country safe would be more careful. So why would they take such a risk? Yeah, so people, people of course, take the risk. They, they look at the pros and cons, they try to work out what's the risk of being identified and caught, what's the punishment. I wonder if people would still use these illicit websites if they actually knew all the risks. Kevin, what are some common misconceptions that people have about the dark web? The general public at large needs to be aware that if you think that you're going to remain anonymous and buy and sell drugs on the dark web or solicit murders or trying to meet young kids and that sort of thing, it is definitely possible they could be captured, tried and convicted and put into prison for a very long time. It's really funny you should mention that because that's exactly what happened to the star of our next story. Okay. A 37-year-old woman from North Dakota pled guilty for buying a chemical weapon online. Officials say that she purchased a dangerous toxin along with the safety equipment for handling it. Now, we don't know what toxin she ordered, but she bought a huge amount. And when she met with an undercover agent, she picked up six packages. That was back in June. Now, this woman faces a $250,000 fine. 
Now, we don't know why she wanted these chemicals, but we can wonder why she chose to go online where her purchases were so easily tracked down. Um, Kevin, what do you think about that? I think there's, unfortunately, again, the illusion of invulnerability with the, the dark web that it's a safe haven for criminal activity. But as we've seen over and over and over again, they can get caught with their hand in the cookie jar or use a more apt metaphor, caught with a hand in the chemical vat. Obviously, people get up to all sorts of trouble when they go online to commit crimes. But what if you're just looking for love? What if you're just looking for simple companionship? Well, coming up next, we're going to tell you the story of a 16-year-old girl who got tangled up in the web of a predator that she found online. You'll also hear the chilling tale of a teen who learned someone hired a hitman to kill her. Our next story will totally make your stomach sick, especially if you have children. But it's important to realize that there are threats, serious threats, out there. In June, U.S. Marshals in San Antonio arrested a man for sexual assault. His victim? Uh, A 16-year-old girl he met on the dark web. Uh, Officials say that this 48-year-old man drove to the girl's home in Boston so he could bring her back to Texas. And on his way home, he assaulted her multiple times. I read that article about that man recruiting that 16-year-old kid. And unfortunately, he's not alone. There's a bunch of these type of individuals out there that need to be apprehended and put into jail for a very long time. That's right. I mean, the dark web is a notorious haven for pedophiles. We can figure out the disgusting reason this man was there. But what I can't wrap my head around is why this 16-year-old girl was actually there to meet him. So, Kevin, we spoke earlier about how the dark web can attract kids who are into hacking, but this girl wasn't breaching anyone's data. She was meeting a total stranger. And I think every parent listening will want to know how this happened so we can make sure that this doesn't happen to our own children. So, Kevin, what's your take on this? What could have possibly drawn this 16-year-old girl to the dark web? I'm speculating maybe loneliness, maybe uh, they're having issues at home with their parents and and they look at the internet as maybe the way out and meeting somebody in the outside world that they could elope with. So you're right. This can happen if kids have a romantic view of the internet. I do believe there's an illusion of invulnerability that nothing bad could happen. And when a teen's speaking with someone online, it can be easy to think that they are the exception. I mean, think about when you were a kid. Nothing bad would ever happen to you. They can develop this attitude of, um, I'm safe. It's the other people who are at risk. I'm fine. But it's absolutely at extremely high risk. That's why it's so important for parents to keep tabs on their kids' usage of the Internet because, you know, and sometimes it's more difficult as they become, you know, teenagers. Because at that age, kids are getting so much better at hiding their tracks what they're doing online and finding ways around security settings. It's extremely important, I believe, to educate and make your kids aware that in the real world, you have, you know, pedophiles and people that would would have no problem raping and killing them. You know, and that's the unfortunate world we live in. 
Federal prosecutors say a man drove from New York to Cape Cod to sexually assault an underage girl he met online. Also new at 10 tonight, an Illinois man pleading guilty to traveling to Connecticut for sex with a 15-year-old girl. A Winter Haven man is behind bars after police say he had sex with a 16-year-old girl he met on a dating website. A Pennsylvania man who got pinched during an online sex sting in the spa city could spend the rest of his life behind bars. William Jameson was found guilty today of attempted enticement of a minor. So parents out there, the best way to prepare your kids is to make sure that they're fully aware of these threats. You have to talk to them about it. The phone in your pocket or the laptop on your table can be turned into a portal through which criminals can enter your lives. But what if your kid doesn't know the dangers? What if your kid doesn't know to stay away from the dark web? They can certainly get into trouble. But what if they actually do stay far away from the dark web? Well, you know, there are still ways they can get hurt. Someone can put a hit to end their life. And that's what happened to a Minnesota teen named Alexis Stern. One day, she got a call from the police out of the blue. They said someone wanted her dead. Yeah, a user on the dark web paid $5,000 in Bitcoin to a hitman for hire site. The user who ordered the hit shared her photo, her dress, and her workplace. Stern worked with law enforcement to figure out who wanted her dead, and the search led right to her ex-boyfriend, Adrian Fry. Alexis met Adrian online back when she was 16 and he was 20. They dated for two years before they eventually broke up. Now, the day after she told Adrian she was dating someone else, the hit was ordered. And there are so many disturbing layers to this story. Kevin... What do you make of this? With respect to the murder for hire, it doesn't surprise me because people are under this assumption that if they're using the dark web, they're untraceable and uncatchable, which is certainly not true. I think that's the most disturbing part of the story is the fact that Alexis isn't alone. This murder for hire website had five years worth of clients. A nurse paid 12 grand to kill her lover's wife. An army specialist called for a hit on his pregnant girlfriend. There is even a YouTuber accused of buying a hit on his stepmother. It's just astounding to me that so many people would go to the internet to like search this out and try to find a way to put a hit on someone. Uh, I mean, what do they think? They can just send some cash online and end someone's life? And uh, they're lulled into this, this illusion of invulnerability, if you will. And of course, what happens, they eventually get caught. And then they face the music. You're absolutely right. Kevin, I'm curious about your thoughts on the future of cybercrime. Do you see things getting better, maybe staying the same? I think it's going to be cat and mouse, you know, as uh, I think Tor is here to stay. And, and as these vulnerabilities are identified and Tor patches them, then law enforcement has to find more ways they could identify the IPs behind the Tor. And I mean the IPs to the Onion sites. Yeah, because it's hard for officials to track down individual users. It's easy to find cracks in sites' armor and shut them down that way. But with Tor's constant updates, it really is a game of who can work faster. So I believe that uh, crime is here to stay, that the the criminal element will still use the dark web, need its end, especially to sell financial data, as we all know about credit card data, PII. And that sort of thing. I think there was even a credit bureau that was breached years ago. And that whole database is available to search on the dark web for like uh, five bucks a search. It's still out there for any criminal to find. So 
Is the dark web really here to stay? Can we get rid of it? It's going to keep going into the vicious cycle. I, I don't see that there's going to be any real end to it. Kevin, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. It was a pleasure having you on board. Thanks for having me, Kim. Kevin is so smart. And as he clearly put it, cybercrime isn't going away. There's no end in sight. But before we let you go, I want to leave you with one closing fun fact. A 2019 study by a university professor found that the dark web's threat is only growing bigger. Now, according to research, cybercrime generates, listen to this number, at least $1.5 trillion in revenues every year. That's right, one and a half trillion dollars. And get this, they say that's a conservative estimate. The number's based on data drawn from the five most profitable areas of cybercrime. Can you name any of them? All right, I'll tell you what they are. IP theft, data trading, crimeware, ransomware, and illicit online markets. So think pedophile rings or drug trafficking, and you totally get the idea. As the dark web's profit margin grows, so does its risk factor. Even if someone doesn't put out a hit on you, you or the people you love can still be hurt by this impact. So that's why it's critical that you always stay up to date in the latest tech news. And the best way is to be prepared is to have a wealth of knowledge. Okay, Knowledge is power. You've heard me say that before. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast, Tech You Should Know. And if you want even more great content, get it all by becoming a Commando community member. It's basically an all-access pass to the Kim Commando Show. You can get my podcast, the video podcast on your schedule. And then we also have this great Q&A forum that if you have any tech questions, just post them in the Q&A forum. I answer them along with a whole bunch of other tech pros. And let me tell you another thing. Your membership, just a few bucks a month, keeps us afloat. So there's that. Special thanks again to Kevin Mitnick for joining us on this podcast as our guest. And also thank you to Serena O'Sullivan, who helped us put this whole podcast together. And to Mike James, our tech director, who mixed it so well. So we all sound so good. And of course, I'm Kim Commando. And a special thank you for joining us. And just a quick reminder again, subscribe to our podcast. We're going to love each and every one. And share them too. Yes. Share the love. Share the love.